You are listening to the Kirkwood Chronicles, inspired by the ridiculousness of my childhood imagination. Season 1, Episode 6, The Hit. Stoneflex. Dawn had yet to rise when Luke Stoneflex threw on a tattered baseball cap and a thrift store jacket. Then he took an elevator down to the apartment building's lobby and walked out onto the street of Tavor. This part of the city was high class. Prime residential estates loomed up into the sky on either side of him as he walked towards the fancy espresso shop at the street corner. As he approached it, the open sign flicked on. Thank you, God, for a 4 a.m. coffee, he muttered to himself. He couldn't shake it, the feeling of frustration over his most recent assignment. He hoped a good cup of joe would help him get his thoughts in order. The door chimed as he walked in and approached the barista as she greeted him with a cheerful, Good morning! He grunted in reply. Hmm. One of those mornings? The barista asked with a tone less cheery. Yep. Let's get you some coffee then. He placed his order. Once he got it, a simple coffee with cream and sugar, he chose a seat so that his back was against the wall nearest to the emergency exit. This allowed him to keep an eye on the entrance and sitting area. It was habit for him to find such a seat in public places, but this time there was intentionality behind it. He felt tense. He had agreed to work for Sir Aaron because that lanky, privileged servant to the crown had promised him that he would only be killing bad people. He didn't know enough about this Vieira Sable to be comfortable with his orders. All he knew is that she was one of those celebrity faces he passed by at the checkout in convenience stores. After a long flight from Garagath, where Luke and his partner had destroyed an armopleb compound and a corrupt ambassador residing there, he now found himself in civilian clothing, having showered and slept restlessly that night in a vacant apartment. He and his partner, Julia Weatherton, were laying low on the same block where the supermodel lived in a penthouse owned by Mr. Lamour of Lamour Lingerie. Biera Sable. What do I know of Miss Sable? He thought to himself, chewing on what little he knew. There was a chime as the shop's door opened, and then, amazingly, he heard the name said aloud. Oh, Miss Sable! The barista exclaimed from the front of the shop. Good morning! Good morning, Liz! I'm surprised to see you this early. I know, I couldn't sleep. To his surprise, Luke saw the very woman he was thinking about engage with the barista behind the counter and place an order. If the barista had not said her name, Luke might not have noticed her, but with a more intentional look, he realized it was indeed her. 
Viera Sable was wearing a baseball cap that concealed some of her face and had her dark wavy hair pulled back into a ponytail. She was casually dressed, wearing jeans, a leather jacket, and tennis shoes. To a casual observer, she would blend right in on the street. Would you like this to go, as usual? Not this time, Liz. Thank you, though. I would like to stay here for a bit. So far, there was nothing sinister about this woman he observed. She was friendly with the barista, placed a large bill in the tip jar, and took her coffee straight, with no cream or sugar. He did notice, however, when she picked up her order and turned her back to the barista, how her smile disappeared, replaced by a weary expression. The coffee cup tinkled against its saucer in her trembling hands. Suddenly, as if she sensed he was watching her, her eyes flicked up to return his gaze. To dispel any possible suspicion, he grinned and nodded at her. Morning, he said. Her shoulders relaxed slightly, and she returned his greeting with a half-smile. Good morning. He looked down at his coffee and took a sip, but kept her in his peripheral vision. Of all the available seats in the house to choose from, including the plush couches near the electric fireplace, she came over and sat with her back against the same wall as him, just a table over. This provided her with the same vantage point of watching the entrance and sitting area. The only downside for her is that he sat between her and the exit. He suddenly felt very conscious of the pistol's weight strapped to his side beneath his jacket and the knife tucked inside his belt. He was experienced using both. The barista walked into the back of the shop and his pulse quickened. It would take him less than a second to draw the knife, lean across the table between them and stab the blade through the supermodel's ear canal. A twist of his wrist would ensure a good brain scramble. She took a sip of her coffee, glanced at him, and asked, So, what brings you in for coffee so early? The irony of her question jolted him out of his imagined scenario. Uh, work, he mumbled. Having finished or going too, she asked. He noticed that she was looking straight at him now, wearing that same polite half-smile she greeted him with. A bit of both, he replied, looking at his coffee. Her smile widened into a full display of perfectly white teeth. Well, now I'm curious. Do you work two jobs? she asked, repositioning herself in her seat to better face him. Her friendliness caught him off guard. He shifted uncomfortably in his own seat. I'm, uh, I'm an independent contractor. He wasn't lying. That's how Sir Aaron described his job. Uh, just finished up a job out of town. Came in to start a new one today. He thought of the corrupt ambassador that he had left in Garagath. He could only guess if that sycophant's corpse would be found before rotting or being eaten by animals, as if he cared. At least this woman would be found quickly. She would be cleaned up and have a proper funeral. She seemed to have one friend, the barista, who would mourn her death. So, what is it you do? she inquired. There was a childlike innocence to her expression. He could feel the sweat breaking out on his brow. 
He took a deep gulp of his coffee to have an excuse to cough and clear his throat. <coughs> she noticed and interpreted his body language personally. I'm, I'm sorry, I don't mean to pry. It's just, I haven't seen you here before. I would know if I had, because I don't see many down-to-earth, hard-working kind of people in this shop. He took advantage of the opportunity to redirect the conversation away from himself and to get her talking. So then, what kind of people do you typically see here? Well, people here come in batches, most of them being women. Pretty soon, we'll see the fit, athletic type coming to and from the gym. As if on cue, the shop door chimed, and a busty, well-toned woman walked in wearing yoga pants and an athletic top. See? Vera pointed her out. Luke found himself grinning, amused by the sight. She went on. Then, you get the busybody, grandmas, that come in for brunch. They linger sometimes until afternoon. Then you get the corporate suits coming in for a pick-me-up. I could go on. It's like clockwork here. And to which group do you belong? he asked. Her eyes lowered to her coffee. She took a sip and muttered, Not sure. He turned to look at her. She was still wearing that polite half-smile. It was then he truly noticed her beauty as more than just a face from a magazine cover. Vibrant turquoise-blue eyes looked back at him, a stunning characteristic, typical for Barbican, but she was obviously an Earthkin. But those eyes, they bore in them the glisten of attentiveness and kindness, but there was also a sadness in them. It was a sadness Luke recognized. He often saw it in the eyes of those who had lived through war, but now struggled to make sense of peacetime's daily grind. I'm sure you'll figure it out, he said before ending with, Miss Sable. She laughed softly and shook her head. I, I see you know who I am. What's your name? After making sure the barista was still distracted with the athletic lady placing an order, Luke gulped down the last of his coffee and stood up. It doesn't matter, but I will tell you this. He stepped over, sat down across from her at her table, and whispered, I would leave town if I were you, Miss Sable, for at least two weeks. Stay low and quiet, because people are coming for you. He then drew his knife and laid it in front of her on the table. And I, I don't want to be one of them. As her dark face paled and her eyes went wide, he got up and walked out the exit. While he made his way back to the apartment building, he felt the frustration leave him, and Luke Stoneflex smiled. Viera Sable Viera stared at the knife on the table in front of her in shock. The pleasant conversation with the stranger, which she had started with the intent to ease her anxiety, had just ended with an unexpected twist. Was this some sick joke? Did the stranger merely intend to threaten her, or did he mean what he had implied, 
that he had come there to kill her, only to change his mind. She suddenly felt foolish for having snuck out of the penthouse and come down to the coffee shop alone. She had just wanted to clear her mind. After meeting Sir Aaron Roseprick yesterday, she had been unable to sleep. But how could she sleep, after what she had learned from Sir Aaron? Prince Lordly Dashington had made a deal with her, that if she went as his date to the Barbican annual royal fundraiser, then he would ensure the royal crown recognized Vilderkin independence. What he had not told her was that she would have to participate as his partner in weird and grotesque rituals during the untelevised latter half of the aristocratic event, all of which ended in a giant orgy of dominance. Sir Aaron had explained each ritual for the upcoming event and the significance of their meaning within the elitist Barbican culture, but that had only worsened her deepening despair. She felt stupid and manipulated and angry with herself. So, unable to sleep, she had come to her favorite coffee shop to just have a moment to herself. Just for an hour, she didn't want to be the controversial supermodel advocating the Vilderkin cause anymore. She just wanted to be an everyday person enjoying a cup of coffee in public. The knife on the table in front of her was a sobering stab back into reality. She flinched as the front door chimed. Her bodyguard, Lex Artman, pushed his way into the coffee shop and looked at her with a pale expression of relief. There you are, he cried, and brushed past the athletic lady waiting for her order. Watch it, jerk, the lady snapped. Pardon me, ma'am, he replied without so much as a glance. He marched straight through the seating area towards Viera and said, You had me worried, ma'am, when I realized you weren't home. You should have heard Leah. She was cursing up a storm. What are you doing down here? His voice trailed off, and he slowed when he saw the knife on the table in front of her. What's going on? he asked, concerned. Viera was shaking. She tried to calm herself by taking a deep breath, but her throat constricted. Tears blurred her sight. I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. He closed the distance between them and pulled up a chair beside her. What happened, ma'am? I just wanted to feel normal. To have a normal conversation, she mumbled and choked on her words, fighting the urge to sob. He seemed nice, but then he told me to leave town because people were looking for me. Last thing he said is that he didn't want to be one of them. He just pulled it out, she motioned at the knife, and left it in front of me. Who said this, ma'am? Where is he? Lex asked. There was a sudden fire in his eye as he looked around the coffee shop. Guilt arose within her, crashing against and swirling with her other emotions. I don't know, she mumbled. He, he left. Lex took the knife tucked it inside his jacket, then wrapped an arm around Viera and helped her to her feet. Let's, let's get you back home, ma'am, he said lowly. He escorted her out of the coffee shop. Once they stepped out onto the street, he tucked her protectively against his side. He slipped his free hand inside his jacket and kept it there, where his firearm was strapped at the ready. He was alert and scanned either side of the street as they walked. I'm sorry, I'm so sorry, Viera mumbled again. 
You have nothing to be sorry about, ma'am, he said. I should have told you where I was going. You're my bodyguard, after all. Yeah, Lex replied, but I understand. You just wanted to be alone. It's not just that. Viera couldn't hold back any longer. The tears streamed freely down her face. I've treated you so rudely since meeting you, pretending I don't need you, but clearly I'm in the wrong. I'm sorry. No more talking, ma'am, he said firmly. It wasn't until they were back in the penthouse and the knife lay on the living room coffee table when Lex finally relaxed. He explained to Leah where he found Vera and what had happened. Leah vented for a good ten minutes, lecturing Vera on how irresponsible and thoughtless she was. During that time, Lex heated up the tea kettle, fixed a mug of ginger pear tea, and placed it calmly into Vera's hand. He sat on the couch across from her and interrupted Leah's tirade with a softened voice. I don't know what happened yesterday after I took you and Leah to that Sir Aaron guy, and I know it's none of my business, but you've both been quiet ever since. I would be blind not to see that Vera has been frightened since then. What exactly happened yesterday with Sir Aaron? She sat quietly. She wanted to open up, to unload the troubling things she had learned, but Sir Aaron Rosebrick had sworn her to secrecy regarding the information he had shared with her. The only person she intended to talk to about it was Prince Lordly Dashington himself, when she saw him next. Leah spoke up, huffing and puffing as she spoke. She can't say. She is beholden to secrecy. However, it is as Mr. Lamore said over the phone. Vera has gotten into some seriously deep water. What's frightening is that she doesn't know how to swim out there. Pardon me, Miss Redwood, Lex replied gently. But allow me to remind you that you are Vieira's assistant, and I am her bodyguard. She may be out in deep water, but we're out there with her. If she sinks, we sink too. Leah shook her head, annoyed, but didn't reply. She instead folded her arms and glared at Vieira. Viera, he addressed her. His ocean-blue eyes were full of pleading. You don't have to break secrecy, but can you share the big picture of what can be said? Tell me what's happened. Viera sipped her tea and took a shaky breath. <sighs> if I follow through with a deal that I made with Prince Dashingson, I go as his date to the upcoming fundraiser. But... If I go as his date, it means I surrender my moral principles and my dignity, according to Sir Aaron. It feels... it feels like either way I go, I'm being used by either Prince Dashingson or Sir Aaron, but I don't know which. Leah swears on Sir Aaron's ability to prepare me for the fundraiser. I want to trust Prince Dashingson, but... ultimately... I want what's best for my people. The truth is, I, I don't know what I'm getting myself into, especially after what just happened at the coffee shop. Maybe I should just leave Tavor for a while. Lex Artman frowned. After a long moment of silence, he finally spoke again. 
Viera, whatever you decide, just stand fast. Leah and I are your allies. I promise you that I have your back through whatever you decide. Just let me do my job. His words, said with gentle calm, cut her. Not in a bad way, but in good conviction. She knew exactly what he meant. She had told him to stay in the SUV when she had gone to meet Sir Aaron. She had snuck past him when she had gone down to the coffee shop, alone. Even though he was her bodyguard, she still behaved otherwise. She needed him now, just like she needed Leah. She nodded her head slowly. Okay, I will. Julia Weatherton What in the cesspool of Wilderka do you mean that you're not going to do this assignment with me? Julia asked, anger boiling up inside of her. The day had just started, and Luke was already ruining it. I'm not going to kill Vieira Sable, nor will I participate in such, Luke Stoneflex stated flatly. Please share. What do you plan on doing then? she demanded, in disbelief. Go track down Prince Dashingson. Go track down the prince, she repeated him in mockery. She raged against him inside. You dimwit, you utter fool. Did he really think he could just tailgate the prince around wherever the man went? Like it was that easy? She snorted derisively. <laughs> when she thought to herself, that's probably exactly what he thinks. She warned him. All orders are straight from Sir Aaron. I will report you to him. Yeah, Luke said unmoved. Orders that conflict with his original deal with me. He said I would only kill bad guys. She is a bad guy, Stoneflex, Julia tried to argue. I saw her file when I worked for the CSS. She is a traitorous harlot, spreading the disease of dissension. She pretends to be this innocent little virgin in the public eye, but she's probably Mr. Lamore's personal plaything. It's no surprise she's trying to upgrade to a prince. Well, I never saw her file. Plus, she seems like a nice lady to me. That confused her as she reeled at his words. You, you know her? No, he said and shifted in his jacket, displaying a hint of uneasiness. But I've met her. When and where, she prodded reactively. Here in Tavor, not that long ago. She eyed him and let the sarcasm roll thickly off her tongue. Your ambiguity is so helpful. Drop it, Weatherton, he growled, then turned and headed towards the door. Call me when you're ready to join me in taking down the real bad guy, he said over his shoulder before slamming the door on his way out. She stomached their exchange with growing hatred for her partner. It doesn't matter. I don't need him to do my job, she thought bitterly. All that mattered in the end was the void gown being found, and Sir Aaron believed the assignment of eliminating Vieira Sable could pressure the thief, Prince Dashingson, to reveal some of his secretive behavior. So, 
Julia would do what needed to be done, even if her dim-witted partner had met the woman before. Orders are orders, she repeated to herself, enraged that Stoneflex would disregard orders. She tried to get over the loathing inside of her. Whatever. I'll let Sir Aaron figure out what to do with my knuckle-headed troll of a partner. So, she got to work. She spent her day methodically preparing and triple-checking the details of her plan. She knew Vieira Sable would be appearing that evening at the premiere showing of Vilder Rise, an alternative history movie based on the Vilderkin uprising against the Armapleb. But, unlike in real life, the movie ended with the Central Union coming to Vildrica's aid and ratifying her independence. Julia scoffed. What a propaganda piece. Apparently, Vera Sable had a brief cameo in the movie, during which her character dies. Such a depiction of martyrdom was obviously a ploy by the filmmakers to capitalize on Vieira's recent fame. But Julia's scoffing became a quiet chuckle. <laughs> She couldn't have asked for a better setting to pull off an assassination disguised as an overzealous centralist patriot. Evening came and cast long shadows on the street from the skyscrapers around her. Julia hugged her dark hoodie closer, not because of the chill in the air, but because she wanted to conceal her appearance. She had watched from the darkness of a nearby alley the activity around the grand cinema building across the street. The red carpet was laid out. Reporters and pedestrians alike gathered behind the steel barriers, each separated to their own side of the red carpet. Cameras were set up and signs began to pop up amongst the pedestrians. Among the many slogans were, We've got your six, Vildrica, and Preach, Miss Sable, preach. Also, the only pinup gal for real men. One obnoxiously pink one read, Barbican for Vilderkin Liberty. But what Julia paid special attention to was the movement of the security personnel around the cinema. They were a private security company which established a tight perimeter around the cinema building. She noticed the tattoo of the Central Common Guard on more than one brawny neck. Ex-military. Security was also complemented by the presence of a few law enforcement officers who worked along the street. The two security forces, however, had unintentionally created a weak point, where their forces met but didn't mingle along the red carpet. There was an excited murmur in the air as limos and SUVs began pulling up in front of the cinema. As the crowd started cheering and cameras began to flash, Julia retrieved her own sign from behind the alley's dumpster. She waited for a moment when the law enforcement officers on the street were distracted with directing the incoming vehicles before she jogged across the street, slipped past their perimeter, and joined the pedestrians. She shifted through the crowd and began cheering as she raised her own double entendre of a sign, which read, Viera, what a smoking body. Besides her hoodie, Julia wore a black wig to hide her platinum blonde hair. She wore a scarf and sunglasses to help conceal her face. Her sunglasses were more than what they appeared to be, however. They were flash glasses. They and the earplugs she had in her ears would protect her from her own flashbangs. Nestled inside her hoodie, she caressed a blaster pistol. 
She mentally double-checked the smoke grenades and flashbangs she had concealed beneath her hoodie to help with the chaos and confusion of a clean getaway. Her planning and patience paid off when a black SUV pulled up at the red carpet. A cinema worker opened the rear passenger door and out came a pair of long, smooth legs. Much of the thighs were revealed by a tailored white dress, which was fitted so tightly against the woman's body that one could see the flex of her upper abs as she stepped out of the SUV. A hush came over the crowd. Dark, shimmering hair spilled across her shoulders. Her flawless, dark skin seemed to glow, a glow exaggerated by her perfectly white smile. Her bright, turquoise eyes glistened like jewels under the outdoor lighting. Gorgeous even by Barbican standards, she was, without a doubt, Vera Sable. The crowd exploded with noise as pedestrian and reporter alike pressed in against the barriers and began crying out for the supermodel's attention. Julia seized the moment of excitement to nudge and shove her way to the front of the pedestrian side and positioned herself in the weak point she had noticed earlier. Vera moved graciously to the reporter side first and began answering questions. The supermodel's dress was backless and revealed her elegant skin. The woman's strong trapezius muscles helped define where a few blaster shots could vaporize her spinal column. Julia coolly contemplated making the shots, then and there, but hesitated when Viera turned around and smiled in her direction. The supermodel came over to the pedestrian side and began shaking hands, greeting people, and signing photos. She moved down the line. Julia timed Viera's approach perfectly. Just as the supermodel moved right in front of her, Julia deftly pulled the pins on her flashbangs beneath her hoodie with one hand. Meanwhile, Viera glanced at her sign and said in an attractive voice, Thank you for the compliment on your sign, and thank you so much for coming to support the show. Take your gratitude to hell with you, Julia said, as she threw her primed flashbangs out onto the red carpet. She pulled out her blaster for every camera to see. Time slowed as heads turned. Security guards pointed. The supermodel's flawless smile disappeared. In her turquoise eyes shone a sudden sadness. Julia pointed her blaster at the woman's face and screamed as loud as she could for all to hear, FOR CENTRALISM! So concludes this episode of the Kirkwood Chronicles. Written and read by me, Nathaniel Thompson, with a special thank you to Elizabeth Volpetta as a voice guest. Please follow along in Episode 7 for the continuation of the story. If you've enjoyed what you've heard, be sure to like and subscribe. Also, for concept art and news about the podcast, be sure to follow this work on Instagram at The Kirkwood Chronicles. Thank you for listening, and may God bless your day.